Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. Role-playing inspiration can come from anywhere, and we use our side quest to explore TV shows, movies, books, and other RPGs that influence our playstyle and storytelling. Whether we draw from intriguing plot points, amazing characters, or, well, you know, just kind of geek out about it, it should be a fun trip, and we're glad you came along for the ride. here and this is tabletop journeys i will be your storyteller and uh, host for arnold, today. arnold um yeah you're not the host for tabletop journeys this is just a commercial for our show fun time with mr dave oh yes silly me of course it is and uh, that's all right just tell the folks that they can watch fun time with mr dave every week on youtube just search mr dave with an exclamation mark and you can tell them that they can also find us on Facebook if they go to facebook.com slash Dave the Entertainer. Oh yes, and I'll tell them that they can also find us on Instagram at instagram.com slash Dave the Entertainer. Yeah, that's a good idea. Tell them that. Um, I think we already did. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. Oh well, see, see you all next time. time. <laughs> Welcome everybody to tonight's episode. We're going to continue our series tonight with our episodes all about the various tiers of your campaigns. Uh, this is going to be another episode that fits into our Storyteller Toolbox. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on how to build role-playing encounters. So last time we talked about combat encounters and kind of scratched the surface on how to go ahead and build those. Tonight, we're going to be talking about probably the most difficult one of the three to build out of the box. The one that definitely takes the most experience and the most creativity to build, and that's your role-playing encounters. We're going to talk about them in a variety of different ways. We're going to share a lot of experiences from our own tables and how we have built them previously, and also some tips and some tricks and some ways to go ahead and think about various role-playing encounters so that you can go ahead and bring them uh, bring them to your table effectively. So tonight, we're going to go ahead and start with Lee Wanika, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about kind of practical experience, some really special examples that he's got to go ahead and bring to the table. So Lee Wanika, let's go ahead and start with you. Thanks. Welcome to the show, everyone. And here we are talking about encounters. Our crew, our team has really felt that it's important to give tools and tips and techniques to everybody. So that's why we're here. And we're talking about my favorite pillar of the three pillars of this game. And that's the role play. I love this pillar. I find it to be much less work than anything else. Other things are very mechanical. You have to understand the rules. You have to understand the mechanics, how they interact in order to make sure things are fair and negotiable. Whereas with the role play pillar, the key element that you have to keep in mind is how to navigate people. It's just being conversational. It's just understanding that everybody has to have their moment to converse or to talk. It's not dissimilar to what the three of us are doing every time we drop an episode. 
we are engaged in a role-playing encounter where we each get to speak our mind, say our piece, have something to say, step back to let other people shine, have their moment, comment on that, celebrate those victories, speak up when we disagree, but allow everybody the moment to have their share. That's, that is really the core element of the role-playing encounter. So I would say as my first example of how to structure or run a role-playing encounter, listen to every episode of this uh, podcast. <laughs> Doesn't have to be in order. Not that he's biased. Do it any way you want. I do have a little bit of bias. I, I will freely admit that. But essentially... I'll always be closing, Lee Winnicott, right? That's right. Always, always. <laughs> but essentially, you're going to get a great, what I feel is a premier example of how to have three people who are all type A personalities in their own way share the screen, share the conversation, share the mic, at, even though we're in three separate locations and three different mics. We are or six, depending on what's going on at a given time, <laughs> but we all have it in our mindset that we're here to have fun together and we're here because we want to hear the our partners shine, our other role players shine. So as a storyteller, that's how I structure my role playing encounters. What am I going to put together so that every party member has a moment? Now, that doesn't mean every party member has to be in every moment, but you got to make sure everybody has their moment. Yeah, and I even I don't even think that every player has to have an A-plus moment in every game. There are some sessions that are just going to be, for some reason or another, dominated by one player or another. And what is... In my opinion, in that kind of situation, what's most important is to make sure that the moment develops properly, right? That the moment is fully realized, and uh, we can do that a little bit from the storyteller side, but that more specifically, that the other players are there. You know, if they realize that they are a supporting role in this in in this particular moment or this particular encounter, that they are supporting that properly. You know, they're not uh, um, they're they're not playing the ranger that is bored with the fact that they're doing the RP encounter in the city and decides to go out hunting in the forest for three hours and taking themselves out of game. Like, that's that's the sort of thing that, that isn't going to help that player be engaged in that particular scene. Present. Thank you. You know, um, it, it kind of goes back to what we talked about in, in Session Zero, where the inherent social contract at the table is that everyone is there to have fun and to figure out a reason why their player is involved instead of working to figure out reasons why their character isn't involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And further, not every character wants the spotlight. Not every player wants the spotlight. Some struggle with that. You know, there's different styles of role playing among different players. Some are all about it. Some are right there in the first person standing there at, or sitting there at your table as their character. Others would rather describe what their character does and tend to lead statements like, my character says, as opposed to just speaking. There's nothing wrong with that either. So part of planning these encounters also, again, like everything else about planning a campaign for your players is about knowing your players and what they need, knowing your players and what they're looking for. So if you can if you can do that, if you can know your players, you can tailor it so that you've got that piece for the guy who really just wants his giant barbarian to be the legendary Zed the Red from the gladiatorial arenas and he's gonna love it he's gonna eat that up and then everywhere he goes he walks into a bar and people yell the red that's all he needs <laughs> he's a happy happy dude 
other people want more in-depth interaction with NPCs. And that's how, and that's where you really got to get creative. But knowing which person wants what and then figuring out how to blend them into the same encounter. The one with Zed the Red when he earned the name actually worked out really well. But I won't go all the way into that because each player had something going on in the scene was unique to their character, but it took a lot of planning for me to come up with that. Along those lines, Glenn, that's one of the things that I did in a game not that recently. It was actually seventh to eighth level of my current, one of my current campaigns where the heroes were becoming big. They were just got to the capital city. They were one of their members became a landed noble and they went to this big, huge gala at court. And I set up the scene where nearly every character who was present for that game had some element of their backstory playing out in some area of this huge palace event. And so everybody had the opportunity, should they choose to get involved, to get involved. I was amazingly lucky every player did. So I had an extremely fulfilling event where everybody got a little piece of their backstory. Everybody's story moved forward. It was a great end to that section of the campaign. It really set up the next uh, story arc very well. It closed off a couple storylines. It opened up a couple new storylines. Everybody felt truly rewarded, or at least I feel they did. They told me they did. And that's what kind of what I look for in a, in a, in a role-playing situation. I want opportunities for NPCs to interact with all of the player characters so each of them can interact in the way they feel comfortable. Like you said, some are going to talk in character. Some are going to do a third person. Some are going to do a mix of both. But everybody had that piece to do what they wanted. Everybody walked out of that with a little something. And I think that's a, the, the key element of a good role-playing encounter. And they tend, at least from my perspective, to work much better in a homebrew game or an ad-libbed game than necessarily in a pre-written module. I find RP to be difficult in a pre-written module because you're really boxed in, literally. Here's your box. Right. And I don't do well in a box. You're trying to fit your mind in somebody else's box too, like you didn't come up with it. So you don't have those little breadcrumbs of, of how you develop the plot in your head that you can use if you have to suddenly, you know, improvise or move on the fly. Absolutely. And I think to, um, you know, to your point, Luanika, about making sure that each player kind of has their moment and each player kind of develops and moves their backstory a little bit, that underscores in spades why backgrounds for a for a campaign, which is going to feature a lot of role play, backgrounds are so essential. Absolutely job that you're trying to do as a storyteller in that kind of environment or that in that kind of setup to give your characters fulfilling RP, you want to pick one or two aspects from every player's background at your table and make sure that in each tier, something happens with those elements. Something happens with those background elements. That was very much when, when I started my tabletop game uh, a few months ago. Before they rolled up characters, before they gave me stats, before they gave me character sheets, I had them give me at least a snippet of their background. And then when they gave me their snippet, then I plugged it into the into the homebrew world that I've got and said, okay, well, you can be from city X, Y, or Z, pick which city, and then I will give you more information about that particular city. As they're doing that, and I'm saying, oh, okay, so player X has this 
secret in their background or this aspect to their character, that's the aspect that I'm going to focus on in tier in tier one. So that, you know, and, and so far, one of the players has had the aspect that I wanted to go ahead and uh, and reveal and play through in tier one. One of them's already had it. And it's no surprise that in the session where that happened, he was the alpha player and everybody else was kind of supporting his particular quest. That was very much his session. Each player is going to have a session like that. And when we reach the end of tier one, uh, which, you know, right now they are, uh, they just reached level three. So we're about halfway through session, about halfway through tier one. By the end of tier one, they will all have had that little move forward, and then there'll be a culmination event that kind of, and I already know what that's going to be, where the, the five or six threads that I have, that I have revealed from their background become a thing and becomes a new rope. And that new rope then is going to be used in tier two. And so that's the way that you kind of pull players a little bit. You don't want to box them into a corner and you don't necessarily want to, uh, to hamstring them into choices, but you definitely want to reveal little bits of stuff and then grab those threads. And when you're pull, when they're moving from tier one to tier two, you pull them in and then that gets them into the plot that gets, makes their players involved in the world. Because by the time a character reaches tier two, level five, level six, that character should be somewhat famous. D&D takes place in a world where champions or, or, or um, heroes and adventurers are not every person, right? They are the, they are the rarity. Right. And so when you get a hero or an adventurer that is, that, that is getting to be that level and has done the things to get to level five or level six, they are starting to get word fame. And so you've got to figure out some way to go ahead and take those threads from their background and then weave them into the tapestry of the story. Because by tier two, they are now part of the tapestry. They can't, they can't live outside absolutely no well said you know it's it and it really is all about how well again you plan in advance and know your players know their characters incorporate them into the story even if they say i'm not really that worried about my background in the end when you're the guy who pulls out that piece of the background that they didn't really care about and make them the star of the show it's still going to mean something to them and they care so even if your players aren't that concerned it can be basic. It doesn't have to be crazy complicated. Not everybody has to be the son of a long lost explorer who, you know, grew up in an orphanage and then his dad finds him and craziness. Oh, it could just totally. be simple. You know, yeah. grew up grew I, up in water deep, learning to be a smith. Something changed his mind, you know, anything. Yeah. Just so you can come up with some NPCs he knew, a place that is his hometown. Uh, it just gives you more that you can use to interact with him. I sort of love kind of picking out those elements that they think are total throwaway. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are the most fun to kind of, ex- uh, I almost said exploit, but then, okay, so exploit, right? That's the, they're, Sometimes it's exploit, cause, but you're exploiting for fun, because the whole thing's for fun. You know, the, 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 the character that has, you know, something in their background that very subtly suggests that maybe there's some sort of family drama, like, oh, family drama? I can throw a supernatural reason for that family drama right there. I can throw it in there. Boom. Done. The mileage that as a storyteller you can get from that, from elevating that sort of detail is, is boundless. Absolutely. And then what you do to elevate it or the process of elevating that is the conversation. It's that they go into town and it's, oh, that's your cousin or that's the friend that you left behind when you went off to be a big hero. He's married, has children, and is and is happy, but a little jealous of you. So your friendship's not quite the same anymore. And how do you role play that? So now you've got this interaction. 
those are kind of truisms that most of us have some familiarity with one side of that coin or the other. You have something that you can go with there. And, and I think that's the key to the role playing piece as a storyteller. Every character in the game has to have a perspective. They have to have a need, a want, a desire, and a perspective. And as long as you understand what that might be for any NPC or have a general idea, what does a farmer want to do? He wants to farm his crops. He wants to take care of his family. He wants to make a living wage. As If you understand that, any interaction with a player character, you need to run from that perspective. Right. Uh, and, and so as long as you do that, that will structure that. Like, did you see where that bad guy went? Well, the farmer's going to give you information about that bad guy as long as it's not threatening his perspective. If it helps his perspective, he's going to tell you everything. He's going to be buddy-buddy with you. He's going to help you more than anything else. Now, if you challenge the status quo, if he knows that telling you that is going to mean the bad guy is going to come down and smoke his whole family or burn his whole fields, he's going to be guarded. He's not going to tell you anything. And that creates a different kind of role-playing encounter. Yeah, right. So always have those perspectives in mind when you're having the conversations. And, and that's really the key element. I did a, a very interesting perspective kind of thing. It was an unplanned event or unplanned part of a role-playing encounter. I have an NPC character who's the father of one of the PCs. All the PCs are gathered in this really surreal, high fantasy, magical, semi-environment, and they're interact. One of the PCs is uh, in, in, in a the starting portions of a relationship with the other PC. The father is aware of this and not sure how he feels about it. So when his, the father's daughter leaves, and it's just the father and this prospective suitor who hasn't proven himself to be a good guy or a bad guy yet, the father is going to be very menacing. So the perspective of this is a father protecting his daughter. I truly get that. At that point, how do I display that in a role-playing encounter? Well, I describe what the father is doing. He's a very calm, measured person. He has a perspective. He happens to be a guild leader of a very powerful thieves guild. So he's got menacing power. He pushed that menacing power a bit forward while still being calm and collected. I have him playing chess. And he's moving chess pieces. And then he makes it very clear that his daughter is his bishop. And, uh, and he starts moving chess pieces to protect his daughter. And then he starts eliminating every other piece on the board. He's not actually playing a game at this point. He's just taking away pieces as he speaks. So while I am describing that, I'm also talking about a totally separate issue. And then I look the player dead in the eye can't like camera i turn my head directly to the camera not where i see the hit the player on my video terminal and i said just bear in mind that i can remove every piece on this board leaving only you and you'll notice i still have all my pieces they will always defend my bishop that's the perspective that was a great role-playing encounter because i was giving so much about what the character felt and how he felt, and and I literally foreshadowing what he would do if things went a different way. The player, on the other hand, loved it. He was like, I can't believe this was so great. He, he just totally loved that moment. Player who played the daughter, that player said the same thing, like, even though the character wasn't present, the player was present, loved that moment. It was one of those things where even though that player wasn't present for that event, very engaged in the conversations. 
And that's kind of what you want to, you're still putting on this event. You're still trying to make it fun for everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that kind of reminds me uh, in the one shots that we all ran this past weekend. One of the situations that my players ran into is that they had to get into this mine. And uh, the way that the world kind of shakes out, the guild of people that run all the mines throughout the kingdom have an alliance with the Mercenaries Guild because the Mercenary Guild provides protection for the mines when the miners aren't there, right? So it's kind of, it's a protection racket by the Mercenaries guild and so the players at you know 10 o'clock at night or whatever go to the mine because they need to get in and there are two guards at the front and in the in the pre-write that i did for this adventure it's like they can try to persuade the guards to let them in or uh they can try to be sneaky and sneak past them and everything like that but depending on how they approach that particular situation is really gonna really going to change how those guards then treat them going forward because yeah in the moment uh the way that the D rules work i can persuade another character to go ahead and let me do something that they might not normally let me do and that's the way that the rules are written and that's the way that the mechanics work and so that's the conceit that we as storytellers we have to we have to on some level give up to the dice roll at that point if they're trying to persuade the character and they succeed over the character's check they persuade the character to do the thing right there's you really can't metagame say well sure you you made your check but they really wouldn't do that rules is written you've got to let that happen but there's nothing that says that that means that if I if I persuade you to let me sneak into the mine right now and an hour later your character realizes I really shouldn't have done that and oh boy, what did they do to me to persuade me to do that? That they're not going to go ahead and then change their opinion of you going forward. So just because they succeeded on the initial persuasion check and therefore kind of got through or you know, use their use their roleplay to go ahead and get through does not mean that later the, the that guard is still going to be comfortable with the players it's not a that's not a permanent state right they can they can let them in right now and still regret the decision an hour later and take that out on the players later for, for whatever reason there's something about that in there so while we do have to allow the dice to kind of control those types of elements we as storytellers set the difficulty for the dice so if the default position, and I am coining, uh, borrowing a phrase from a podcaster, if the default position is, I defend this post, I, don't, I follow my general orders, I don't let anybody pass here, that should make a much harder difficulty. A trained guard, like a level two trained guard or a CR2 trained guard, that should be a DC 18 because it should be remarkably difficult to convince a guard to not guard. Right. And, and, and the way to lower that difficulty is through role play. Because then you go up to that. If, if I'm level four fighter and I go up to that level two guard, I can't just say, uh, I don't want him to guard. So I'm going to persuade him to do that. Yeah, that's level 18. But if I go up to that level two guard and say, look, bad stuff's coming. If you don't want to die, leave. That level two guard is going to respond to that much better than he's going to be responding to, you know, sweet talk from the horny bard who's trying to go ahead and convince him that he doesn't want to guard. No, the guard still wants to guard, but he might not want to die more than he wants to guard. And so that's the kind of thing that might take the DC 18 and drop it down to DC 15 or DC 12 or something like that. Like that's that's how role play can impact your roles. Absolutely. Or choose a bribe. Oh. You know, if your player chooses to go with, hey, man, you know. 
give you a couple of gold, you let us in, you know, then that, that can also lower the difficulty, especially if he's already, you've already decided that he's on the team. Exactly. I mean, if, if he's a level two town guard and he's making one gold a week as a salary, if you come up and offer him, say, hey, I'm going to give you 20 gold to let me in, what level two guard isn't going to do that? Right. Absolutely. But again, that's where perspective is. So that's where you as a storyteller have to say, is my town guard as a general group honorable? If they are honorable, how many of them have people that might be on the take? What would they do? For, what would they go for? How do they feel about their odds of getting caught? You know, is it one of right. is it one of those? Look, man, there's no way I'm letting you get into this bank or get into that vault unless somehow or another you're giving me enough money I can move to Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Right. You know. And, right. Because even if you're honorable, honorable, you've got to, most people have a price if you get high enough. And I'm not suggesting anybody go out and rob a bank. <laughs> No, no, at all. We are not we are not enforcing crime. We're talking about role playing and exactly. fictional world. In a fictional world, right? We all watch The Godfather. We all watch The Sopranos or shows like that. But at a certain point, it's like you can give me a whole bunch of money, but if I if I still live in the same place and things bad things go down, people are coming to my door. That's not a good thing. I mean, how many cop shows do we watch where they catch the person that helped the guy do the job? And that's the first guy going yep. to jail. Or, or the first one turning state's evidence to go ahead and get the other guys. Yeah, exactly. So we've definitely talked about knowing your players, and now we're talking about knowing your NPCs, which is just as important because, you know, as we've been covering, you got to know where they're coming from. If you don't know where they're coming from, you can't accurately portray them or interact with your players. Um, but we've also mentioned ways of, you know, adjusting somebody's perspective in a role-playing encounter. And I know we keep saying role-playing encounter, and it all sounds very vague, but Lee did a pretty good job of explaining that it's a conversation like we're doing now without giving you like breaking down into an improv scene, you know, but it's important to realize, and this is kind of come back to knowing your players again. It's important to realize that sometimes if your player, the best that they can manage because of their role playing style and their comfort level with the game, but they're trying to have fun is I'm not that great at this, but my character says something compelling to try to convince him. Sometimes you got to say that's okay. You encourage the player. You try to give them some ideas maybe afterwards or on the side. But you got to remember that when we're looking for role play, because we're all big role players, sometimes someone at your table might not be. And they might need to say uh, when you ask them what they look like. They might need to punt. They might, they, they might panic. I had this happen at a game actually just the other day. And uh, she did manage it in the end. But I'm like, don't be afraid to punt. You can say, I don't know. What do I look like? And I'll make it up for you. You know, Don't put them on the spot to the point that you make them uncomfortable and damage their fun. You've got to give them the ability to play at their level and let the dice decide if they don't have the ability to have the conversation live. And part of that comes with, and it's very important in role-playing encounters. We talked about it in in combat encounters. You have to know what, what abilities your player characters have, what features they have, what feats they have, so you know how that interacts. You know what to expect. You know, can they do a two-handed thing or that? Same thing in a role-playing encounter, but it's a little more fluid, right? You have to know what is on that character sheet. Knowing that player character, even if it's not their top stat, has a 13 charisma versus a 8 charisma. And, and let that alter how you listen to them speak. So if they come up with something cool, or if they want to come up with something cool and it's maybe not that cool, but they have that 13 charisma... You got to cool that up for them. Right. You got to help them out. And I'll be honest with you. This is, you know, I, I picked on Josh uh, to, uh, in a previous episode of, about fudging dice. And I, and I, I talked about the fact that I don't do that. 
But when it comes to the RP pillar, I do that. If somebody comes up with something truly awesome and they have an eight, that was their stellar moment that knocks it out of the park. Everybody, everybody hits one out of the park every now and then. I don't care how bad your charisma is. So if somebody does something pretty cool and they had uh, an eight or a nine, I might, I will still have the NPCs respond to that as cool as it came across. Now I might do something from a role-playing perspective to make it clear that it wasn't smooth, but I will still let that most certainly succeed. So I do fudge in favor of role-play. If you're role-playing something really well, something in that role-play pillar, I'm not talking a physical stat or an abject negative or whatever, but you come up with a cool idea or a cool whatever, I don't care if you have the lowest stat in the world and your character tripped over the idea. Maybe you were sitting under a tree, an apple fell, and you said, I wonder what force of the earth could cause this apple to fall from the tree. You could have a four and still make that sentence to me, as far as I'm concerned, if that was the first time it had ever been said. And I'd be okay with that. So I fudge in favor of good role play. And story. And story, right? I'm going to make sure that we move the story forward. And I'm going to make sure I celebrate somebody having a moment where they felt what they're saying on behalf of their character added to. This is an additive game or it needs to be an additive game. We try our best to rule out, eliminate, and structure around the things that detract. We have got to help plus up those things that are adding to this game. And the role-playing pillar is precisely where you have the best ability as a storyteller to do that. While we all say that the role-playing pillar is, I mean, it's easy for us, again, because we're used to uh, kind of employing homebrew worlds, um, and we've been doing this for a long time, so we are very used to go ahead and bringing players into the stories that we are setting up and, and having them be active players, and that there are still some tips and tricks that can help uh, spawn that sort of role play. Um, and I want to go ahead and talk uh, about one of them that I have been uh, using extensively for a really long time, although I didn't know it, uh, to be fair, at, f- at first. Uh, something which now that I know the name of it, I'm doing it with much more intent and I'm doing it much more mechanically is the wrong word, but uh, that's, you know, in that I'm using like roll tables and stuff like that to go ahead and spawn it. And that is running my homebrew world from a perspective of collaborative world building. Okay, so collaborative world building at its core is an invitation to your players at the table into not just the story that you're trying to tell or the particular campaign that you're running, but to make them an active participant in the world that they live in. And I use this as a jumping off place for a lot of role playing encounters. The easiest implementation of it that I have uh, that I have found that now that I've kind of been consciously thinking about it is as a way to fill in the gaps in a period of time when players are traveling from point A to point B or something like that. You know, if they've got a if they have a three day journey to get from one city to another city, collaborative world building is one of those things that you can use to fill in those three days with actual activities that the players are doing that can then shape the session in in a really in in a concrete way. Um, the other thing that I've used it for is being in a home 
homebrew campaign with, you know, 25 or 26 cities in it or whatever it is, you know, when my campaign went to a city for the first time and, you know, this being a relatively new homebrew campaign, nobody else had ever been to that city either. Um, I absolutely used a lot of create uh, of collaborative world building technique to have the players help me as the storyteller flesh out what's in that city. Here's the conceit at the end of the day is that, yeah, while I have come up with the idea for this world, I did not think through every single little teeny tiny aspect of that world, right? And some of the things that the players came up with when we did this collaborative role-playing thing really gave some some really unique flavor to, to the city in particular. Um, and a lot of times the way that I'll do this is ahead of my session, uh, and I've shared, uh, for those of you on, on Twitter and on Facebook that have, uh, that have had conversations with me about collaborative world building, I've shared some of these documents with you, but generally what I will do is I'll create a, a D20 based role table with questions. And when we reach the part of the session where we're going into a collaborative world building phase, each player in and there are various mechanics that you can use to decide what the order is. You know, initiative is just as easy as anything else, frankly, or alphabetical order or whatever. Um, but basically they roll a D20. And then whatever question they get on the thing, their character has to answer. So here's some examples. In the journey from point A to point B, uh, one of my favorite questions on that on that table, there's actually there were two questions that were kind of opposites of one another. One was your player sees a good omen. What is it? Uh, and then the other side of that coin is that your player sees a bad omen. What is it? You know, kind of thing. And so it, it has the players sort of engage their character's mindset and say, okay, what would my character think was a good omen in this in this scenario that has been laid out in front of me? You know, there's a lot of uh, wild fauna and a lot of big trees and a lot of weird animals and everything like that. What would they see as a as a good omen um, or or a bad omen? You know, was there a, a storm rolling in or did uh, did this weird animal cross their path or, you know, whatever. But it really gets the players to kind of engage their character's mindset about what their character would think was a bad Bad omen. That doesn't mean that every character would think that it was a bad omen or a good omen, but it means that their character in that moment saw that as a, as a bad omen, as a bad or a good omen. So it's like when you know when the character saw the particularly beautiful sunset over the mountain that just like filled them with hope and everything like that. Well, as a storyteller, what does that do for me? That tells me that sometimes the place where they are has unique sunsets. That's now a game element that is going to recur. And the next time that they see something like that, the connection will be there. And we can use that as a little bit of synergy between session three and session 17 when they see that sunset again. So that's one example. The other one uh, that I wanted to talk about was when they were in that city and kind of defining the city for the first time, the city was not quite as fancy as the city that they'd been in before, um, but had like a lot, a lot of commerce and a lot of shipping and trading and stuff and stuff like that going back and forth. They had got there late in the day, and uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the question was. It was, but it was basically like you know, as you're as you're standing on the street, um, name one sense, like one physical sense that is is strange, and what is it? You know, do you smell something funny? Do you see something funny? Do you hear something funny? Um, and the uh, the player was like, well. It's late in the day. He's like, yep. I'm like, 
you know what? I smell a lot of horse crap because if there's a lot of commerce that goes on in the city, the streets probably haven't been cleaned all day. I'm guessing that there's just there's just tons. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. And we went off, we riffed back on forth on that for quite a while because then we started talking about how, well, the super fancy city, you know, has streets that are only used by the commerce people. And so like the main streets that the fancy people walk up and down, you never run into that. But in this city, Everything is like that, you know, that kind of thing. And so it really helped specify what the difference was in between. But it's, it all came from a role-playing encounter that we were engaging with the players. I really, really like that. I, I love it, in fact. Um, when we first started talking about it and I first heard about it from you, I was really excited. I've been thinking about it a lot. You do this like... You give them the questions in advance, but then do it live in the session? No, I don't give them the questions in advance. I write the questions in advance. So the players you, only know the questions that they roll. Have you thought about doing it between sessions too? Because I think that that's where it could be the hottest, especially for those people who struggle on the spot. Because now you're challenging them to come up with an aspect of their environment and get involved in the world when they have time. They're not in the spotlight. They're not in front of everybody else. You might get, you know... Uh, page and a half story back or three paragraphs you never know um but uh, i think that would be a fantastic thing to do like between sessions especially for saying you know between this session and the next session you're going to be traveling from this city to that city then you come up with your questions let me let, let me go ahead and put a cap on that and then Winika, i see that you want to go ahead and chime in let me just put the cap on that and i'll tell you what i'm doing for the next session in fact um, so uh, my players have returned back to whence they started their campaign for a variety of reasons, but they are about to leave again. And the, the person that was giving them their job told them to go ahead and take a 10 day off uh, so that they could go ahead and see their families and handle their business and everything like that. Right. So the players know that I'm asking them the set. The next session is going to begin with them telling me what they did during their particular 10 day. And then the other thing that I do on my table that really has nothing to do with with role playing encounters, but more from like an experience point, uh, not experience points, but a um, a character achievement point of view. Uh, each character has the opportunity to win uh, advantage in one particular check based on their role play from the game before. So that's the kind of way that I, I try to re reward role plays. That if a particular character role played being particularly persuasive or role played being particularly sneaky or something like that they can gain advantage based on vote of the players at the table for the next session and so we're going to start the session by going over what each player did during their 10 day and then based on those i'm going to pick one thing that they did during their 10 day that's going to be what their entry is in for the pool to determine if they get advantage in that for the rest of the session depending on how on, on the advantage of their 10 day and it's all going to be based on on the, the way that they're able to present their 10-day. They've had a month and change to go ahead and think about it. They will be presenting it at the table, and then the players are going to vote on which one they thought was the most effective. So that's kind of the way that I'm... So that's, that's the way that I kind of handle that as a little Benny uh, for each game. Based, and it's all on rewarding, rewarding roleplay, making your character do something outside of its box. I definitely like it. I mean, you've developed it a little bit more complexly than my mind has wrapped itself around it yet. I'm not certain <laughs> I'm ready to go that far, yep. but... The, the the base concepts behind it, I, I really, really dig. And as I'm exploring it, I bet I'll probably wind up in a similar spot as you. Rewind about 10 minutes and listen to this episode over and over again. You'll get the gist. The more times you listen to this episode, the more times you're going to uh, have a better grasp of what we say. Uh, what I wanted to say about that, uh, and for the listening audience, especially those who've been with us since the very beginning, 
what Josh just described with the horse stung in the city, that was what spawned that somewhat infrequent, but somewhat frequent comment about hashtag all dung is organic. That, that bit is where that comes from. And we do throw it out there every now and then, or I'll sneak it into a post somewhere or something on the Facebook group. So when you hear that, always know that that little in joke amongst us comes from a role-playing encounter or role-playing encounter mechanic. And I think it's, it's very brilliant in a similar vein, but with less mechanics because I'm not nearly as math capable as my co-hosts. <laughs> I have done something slightly different. What I've done to kind of do collaborative world building through role play is I allow characters during, and it starts with the backstory. It carries on with those little moments that we build into the campaign and those little uh, role-playing encounters that we build into the campaign to really give me a feel. I'm actively listening and taking notes on what they feel about the organizations that they've come from or that they're encountering. And then I literally write those organizations to fit the feeling that the players are going for. So it is collaboratively world building. So for instance, I had built into my campaign world a very specific rogues guild, thieves guild type setup from a good guy organization perspective. I had a newer player to that particular game who wanted to be, took the background criminal scion and wanted to uh, be from criminal organization, but closer to that more traditional vein. So I knew I couldn't make her part of the one that was already in the adventure. So I picked the city that we did, had not explored all that much, but we were headed to. And I said, well, you're from this city. And I said, and your father runs that guild. Your brother is next in line. Uh, you're a, a true and honest member of that guild. And then let that player character structure every piece of the interaction with that group. So what she's talking about, what she's looking for, you know, the things that that group does that's shady, those were ideas that came from that player. The things that they do that are altruistic and good, those are actually things I pulled out of her conversations about that guild. I'm, and, and she continues to be engaged in going back to and supporting and taking care of and being a part of that and bringing that back into the game because it's what she wanted. But it's not that I made, it's not that I had something that was, that she wanted. She is actually building what she wants. All I'm doing is codifying it and making the rules. So now when other player characters interact with it, they're getting the organization that she built. And, and I think that that's an amazing way to do effectively what Josh is doing in his world is I'm building these organizations around the players. So, I, you know, and, and that's just one example. And, and that's a throwback to the same campaign that we have been playing in. We talk about our friend Benito all the time and about the campaigns that he ran. That's a throwback to what he would do. Like he would say, you know, like I'm playing character X, character X is a member of group of group one, two, three, all of a sudden group one, two, three, the, the, the organization and the structure and the attitude of that group is born from the way that you play character X. You know, we talk a lot about character agency. That's the way to build character agency is to make them feel like not only are they just a faceless, nameless member of that group, but that they are the standard bearer of that group and that how they go, so goes the group that they say they are a member of. 
Right. And that's kind of how classic collaborative world building worked. It's as you go through your adventures with your players, you're picking up on their interests and their comments and the things that they're doing and you're planning to meet them, to meet them in the middle. Um, and collaborative world building is is the best way, best way to go in general anyway, because like all of the other things we're talking about, it's about getting your players buy in. It's about getting them to become part of your world. So first, they got to have a solid background. They got to understand their character. You need to understand how they're going to play their character. And then as they move forward in the game, you need to make them feel like they're part of the story, part of the world, and that what they're doing matters. And when you're working with collaborative world building and in general, when we're doing the kinds of things where we're talking about players and how they interact with the world and how it is, how it affects the world. Um, I highly encourage when you get to the point where you're ready to start keeping track of it, uh, you to use a reputation system or an honor system that tracks how your party is viewed in the world, like a, a measure for you to be able to remember when they walk into a new city in the same kingdom, are they unknowns or are they heroes of the land that are recognized by their standards um, and letting them have those different organizations that they helped build. You can also have, honor systems or honor isn't the right word reputation reputation Reputation. a reputation system with the different organizations for you know if they solved a a mystery and they thwarted the evil hag okay well that's awesome and there's all of these people over here they love that but don't forget there's some folks on this side that it's lowering their reputation with and all of that is helping them become involved and part and become part of a living, breathing world. There is no better way to go ahead and create a campaign-long enemy than to take the influence that an NPC had because you're doing their job better. Like that's yep. the that's the way. How many how many comic book stories have been written that way? How many movies have been built that way? How many novels have been written that way? When you take influence or reputation or prestige from one person. That's how you get enemies. And that is what we're talking about. Even if you're taking reputation from somebody who's not the big, bad, evil guy, if you are protecting the town better than the guy whose livelihood is about protecting the town and the king no longer goes to him for counsel, but they come to you, that guy is your enemy. And by the time you're in the later elements of your campaign, he's the guy who sells out the town. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you've been building that since tier one, by the time you get to tier three, that's awesome. Because he's not only selling out the town in tier three, he's selling out the kingdom because he's that angry at you. And as long as you can have the role-playing encounters where you see that anger and that frustration ratchet up every couple of adventures, four or five times over the course of 15 levels, it will be a big payoff. It's Bane from Batman. Yeah, absolutely. So what I want to do at this point is I also want to do something a, a little different that we didn't do in the last one specifically. And it's a, it's very much off script, mostly because we don't have a script. It, it, so here we go. <laughs> we promised you an, a role-playing encounter building episode, and we called it 102. We called the other one 101. So I this has been a great exercise in the conversation. It's been a role-playing exercise in the role. However, not everybody approaches the game from our perspective. So in an effort to make sure we're providing tools for other storytellers and understanding for other players that don't start where we start with this, I wanted to break down some basics, right? And so 
If you're doing a tier one campaign, the number one thing that I'm focused on to get good role-playing encounters is providing great backgrounds for the characters and great perspectives and understandings from any NPCs they're going to meet. If I do that, my role-playing encounters will be better and they'll matter. I will say this, as a storyteller, take notes. If players pique interest or ask two times, what was that guy's name again? Or you hear them in after the game talking about or in between games before the next game, oh, I love that guy's voice. Make sure you write that down. That's an NPC you need to bring back in tier two because that's going to make a difference and make it matter and make the role playing in that next session that much better. Glenn, what are some of the things you would do in tier one to really bring out the like what, what would your advice to storytellers in that tier one area be uh, to get good RP encounters? I was headed in the same direction as you, Lee, and if you hadn't done a, a quick turn, I was too, because we're talking a lot about the concepts um, from a higher level, because that's really kind of how we see them. And you got to understand those concepts behind it. But yeah, the people out there need some core, crunchy, like actual advice too to help them figure out how to get through this. So actionable um, intel is the operative. actionable intel. That is the operative word. One of the things that I think is really important when you're planning a role-playing encounter, uh, regardless of tier, but in tier one, you're trying to introduce your characters to your world, so it does change the perspective a little bit, um, is you really, one of the first things you got to do is you got to figure out your cast. You got to know who's going to be there. Who are they going to run into, right? So one of the first things that I do, I try to come up with who has to be there. You're going to make a list of who has to be in the scene? Who's required, right? So if it's a scene about trying to sneak into a mine, who are the required actors? The PCs, the guards, those are the only people required. Okay, who else could be there? That's your next question. And who else could be there? Some miners going in and out of the mine on break, uh, a foreman, random guy walking by with a cart of bread. Teenagers sneaking in for nookie. I mean, that's, you know. So you come up with your list of who could be there. And then you come up with a couple, if you can think of any like, total oddball wackadoos you throw them on the sheet too but you're, you're basically just trying to make sure you know who they are and then try to make them distinctive i mean the first part of it was more preamble this is the important part when you're looking at the characters and the npcs that you're going to play you want to look at perspective we mentioned that earlier and you want to have that perspective in mind when you're actually role-playing them but beforehand do a little prep work plan who's going to be there so if you know you're going to have a dock master at the dock name him have it ready to go. Obviously, that's the easy stuff. What's he like? What's he do? You know, and start trying to come up with ways to take notes and set up personality quirks. And for an example, the doc master in question is off of a spreadsheet of NPCs that I had for my session zero that I just did a little while ago. And it's basically every NPC for the town is on this spreadsheet. But I've only detailed the ones that I know they're going to meet in the first adventure when I start so that I don't have to try to invent the entire thing off the, off the cuff from the beginning. But when you're looking at them, but you can straight up make notes about them, how they're going to work, how they look, how they're going to act. But as you're working on your list of cast members, make sure you come up with specific personality traits. It's going to make each one distinctive so that they stand out. Cause that's really what's going to start to get your players to interact with your world and role play with it is if you are showing them a diverse cast of individual, unique, distinctive people, 
it'll start to feel more real to them when they're trying to interact with it as opposed to just being flat and two-dimensional if you everybody's always the same and they're always just a guard or they're always just a commoner so like as an example i put notes in there like one of them one of my guys is he's an old stone carver he's a very old elf so what i put in for his um his notes is it, it says calm slow and deliberate dash master yugwe like i'll straight up give myself like a prompt on how to play it master yugwe from kung fu panda you know or if you've got somebody who's harsh and abrasive in your uh, in your tavern you could put a character note on there play, player like carla from cheers um but come up with something special specific and different about each of them that you can pull off so that your world comes to life for your characters. And that's the way that I start with trying to plan it for the folks in the beginning. But the second part of that is also trying to plan characters that you know are going to interact well with the PCs your players have created. Again, farming that background. It's farming alignment, their first session or two. And as you're continuing to flesh out, you're designing your, P your NPCs with your PCs in mind to help drive your story. I believe Josh coined the phrase uh, some time ago, you got to farm that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I'm right with you. Josh, how about you? Uh, tier one, I know you have your system and your rules, but what is, what's some great actionable intel you think a storyteller can use at the tier one uh, level? For me, so I, I love Glenn's advice about crafting crafting the NPCs that your players are going to be interacting with. For me, it's about having them interact with the world. And so, you know, like I said, this campaign is very much in tier one. So it's what are they seeing when they're moving from point A to point B? What do they see when they go into that city that they've never been in for the first time? You know, that sort of thing. It's it's getting them into understanding the world that they live in uh, as much as it is uh, understanding the people that they run into. You know, like um, one of the great things that came out of that adventure when they went to the city for the first time is that totally organically at the table they found a exotic animal market like that's just what one of them came up with and then all of a sudden when there was an exotic animal market the druid wanted to go to the exotic animal market and find a pet and so then they found a pet and it got them down this entire rabbit hole that took probably a quarter of the session to go ahead and, and realize and go through the pet that they wound up finding got into all kinds of crazy adventures. I mean, it was, it was, it was great. And, and none of that would have happened if, if I hadn't given them the freedom to go ahead and say, what is it that you see in this city? And that one of them said, nope, exotic animal market, you know? Um, and so that was really, for, for me, it's really about getting them to engage with the environment to cohese as a party around the experiences that they're having uh, a little bit more so than it is about the NPCs. I mean, the NPCs are there and NPCs are important, uh, but for me, it's more about, about building the environment. Absolutely. So I think what we're going to do is just do this same treatment, actionable intel on tier two, and then we'll cap it there. And the reason I want to do that is I want to keep this as something quick and easy for people to, to go through to uh, learn, listen, and get to play in. And then we're going to revisit a few months from now and talk about the same topics and with feedback from the audience, experiences from the audience, new experiences from our varied tables as we do more tables and more events. Then we'll get into higher tiers or what have you and where we'll go. For tier two, nothing changes from tier one. All the things that I have spoken about 
all the things that Glenn has spoken about, all the things that Josh has spoken about are things that I would do in tier two. The only things I would probably add is make sure you carry forward the things from tier one that pique the most interest. If there's something they really like, move that forward and bring that up a notch, right? So if there's a character that they really liked and they went back to, move them forward. If they're in a different part of the world, find some reason why that guy might have moved there. Think Avatar The Last Airbender and that cabbage merchant was everywhere and went. <laughs> the freaking cabbage merchant. Like, we all laugh about it. It's a joke and it's funny, but how engaged were you? How grounded did that story feel? Because we saw this cabbage merchant everywhere. You always understood that there were real world stakes, no matter how powerful Aang got, no matter how crazy the world got, there's still some guy that's just trying to make a living selling cabbages. Those NPCs brought forward, put them in the area, in the vicinity, make sure they're threatened so the PCs can help them. Or maybe they're the ones that the PCs are threatening if you're playing a, uh, angst-ridden evil campaign. There, There's all kinds of ways to do that, but it's bring those things over, plus them up. The one other thing I would do that I've done in Tier 2 is elevate with your characters. In Tier 1, your characters are local heroes, small-time heroes. By Tier 2, they've got to be bigger. They're venturing out into the region. They're getting known by nobles and lords. Uh, it's not the sheriff. Now it's the knight. Now it's the Duke that knows them. You know, maybe they're looking for an audience for the king. They're not necessarily getting it, but maybe they're looking for it. So make sure you're ratcheting up the stakes with each of these encounters. This is the point where your, your big bad evil guys are, are more menacing, more powerful. As a storyteller, don't be afraid to monologue the crap out of those big fights. That is a means of bringing up role play. It may culminate in a combat encounter, but there's nothing wrong with starting that off with a good conversation. Or maybe the big bad evil surrenders and he wants to role play his way into a jail sentence versus death. And I think that when you talk about tier two, you really nail kind of how my approach is to tier two. If, if tier one for me is about getting the players and the characters familiar with their environment, tier two is really when NPCs become much more important. Not only, like we talked about earlier, about how you're taking background threads and kind of pulling players from tier one into tier two, that's going to introduce them to a new crop of NPCs, but it's also going to be the NPCs that they met in tier one and how how are the interactions playing back and forth. The, tier two for me is much more about, you know, the friends that they met along the way. You know, it's it's very much a, a, a after school special um, a kind of inspired, uh, um, you know, interaction where, you know, who were who were the people that helped them get? Are those people that helped them? Are the people that helped them succeed now that they're somewhat famous coming after them for something? Are they trying to go ahead and get them to you know like hey I did a favor for you three levels ago how come you're not doing a favor for me now I've got this thing that I need taken care of and now you're now you're a big scary character you're a big scary adventurer you know you can go ahead and muscle uh, my rival farmer into giving me the farm coin that I want or or whatever so tier two for me is very much it's much much more about interaction between the, the PCs and NPCs than tier one. We have gone over some of our um, some of our approaches to roleplay encounters. We've talked about some of the mechanics about how to go ahead and bring better roleplay encounters to your particular table. Lee Wanico, why don't you share your final thoughts with me? I think Glenn said it best. 
we spent a lot of time talking about concepts and the overall and storytellers and players need to understand that backdrop in order to do well with the role-playing pillar. We then talked about actionable items and intel and processes that will work well at the role-playing pillar and at the table. Keep those things in mind. Refresh your memory on those when you need to. Fall back on them. Like, like I said, take notes. Come up with things that work for you. If it's naming uh, your NPCs or putting a note that says they're like such and such, make do that. That's a great way to keep those in mind, and that allows you as a storyteller to be consistent. Role-playing can be so much fun, but you do kind of have to build a, a library in your head of how and when to really engage with it. And if you do that, you're going to get more engagement out of your players. And that's the name of the game. How do you get your players to engage? Storytellers can start the engine, but leaving the players with enough agency to go ahead and run with it is absolutely the most important. As a storyteller, what you've got to know is how to go ahead and start the ball rolling and then get the hell out of the way and let the ball roll. Absolutely. Thank you again, gentlemen. This has been a fabulous time as always. And thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.